And here is, all, here is your call. Your purpose in life is simple. I want you to go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Then, then it kind of spills over into Acts 1. says, listen, call you to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth with the, with the gospel message of Jesus. And so we said, for all the, 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 the written books out there and all the tension that people face about trying to figure out what's my purpose in life. It's really simple. It's so simple. It's right there in your eyes. It's this. It's to love God with everything that you have and then to go make disciples by loving your neighbor. Right. And so God doesn't care what context you do it in as long as you were doing that. Right. When you get to heaven, God's not going to go, hey, man, you did a great job of the CEO of this company. All he wants to know is, did you love me and did you love people? Right. So so just stop freaking out about your about your purpose and your calling in life because you've already been given it. Love God. And what else? Say it again. Make disciples and love your neighbor. Right. Love, make disciples and love your neighbors. And so we said, this is the beginning of discipleship. We've been called to be disciples and to make disciples. And we went on next week and said, you can't lead somebody. Listen, common sense. You can't lead somebody to someplace you've never been. Right? You can't disciple someone unless you are effectively a disciple of Jesus. So we took the discipleship litmus test, which was this. Jesus said, if you're going to be my disciples, if you're going to follow me, here's the test. You've got to hate your mother, hate your father, hate your brother, hate your sister, hate your spouse, and yes, even hate your own life. So to be a great disciple, we have to hate well. Which looks, makes Jesus sound conflicted because we just said the call of humanity, the call of Christians, the followers of Jesus is to love God and to love our neighbors who are our mother, our father, our sister, our brother, and everyone else around us, right? So what we said was simply this. Jesus is coming and saying, your priority in life and your primary relationship is me. And everything else would be such a distant second, it's almost as if you hate it, right? And you see, he's, he's, he's using this language in, on, on purpose, right? This kind of this, this difficult language to make a point. It's like when your kid says, I'm starving, and they're not really. They're using exaggerated terms to make you understand exactly what level of hunger. He's using exaggerated terms here again to make us understand the type of love and affection that we're supposed to have for Jesus as the priority, Okay. And so then we came back and said, okay, this is the relationship theory. And then I, last week I was here, I talked about then the jealousy of God. The jealousy of God. It's actually, it says in Scripture that his name is jealous. Right? We just sang it. You just sang it. He is jealous for me. Love like a hurricane. How many of you have ever gone through a, a real hurricane before? Randall and I lived in, and we lived in Orlando, and we went through three hurricanes in three months. It was nuts, Right? And his love is as relentless, right? It's as zealous, it's as passionate as a hurricane. That's the picture. So that's the idea of this jealousy. I mean, there's a negative jealousy of having envy. But the other flip side of that biblically is that jealousy has this passion, this zeal behind it, as if, as if a, 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 a jealous lover. That's the picture. It's actually what it means in Scripture, as if a, a wife is cheating on her husband, and the husband has this jealousy aroused in his heart, this righteous anger that rises up inside and says, how dare this man try to steal my wife? And there's just this zeal and this passion. We said, and we said this is the deal. This is God's love for us. And most of us don't understand that. 
We're not living that out on a daily basis. We don't actually think of the jealous nature of God's love for us. And I told you to pray, pray, pray for revelation, for awakening to that. Because it messes, listen, it is a holy mess up when we, in our lives, when we figure out how much he loves us. It messes everything in us up. I mean, it just wrecks us in a, in a wonderful way. You can't, I mean, it's just wonderful when we recognize his jealousy and his passion and his love for us. And so that's kind of where I left y'all, was praying into that awakening, praying into the understanding of that type of love that he has for us. All right? So, so now we're going to jump back in this morning and say, this is discipleship. So why don't you roll this video? This is the video. This is, I'm going to roll this video real quick. Let's say, this is kind of what I believe God's doing, kind of this next step of discipleship advantage for us and who we're supposed to come and how we're supposed to view discipleship as a church. Let's roll this. I made that video. I'm just kidding. I didn't. Now, now the idea when we see this picture, when I look at being, being, I look at church, especially in, I'm gonna, and I'm going to pick on Southern Christians. Southern Christians, we are really good at going to church, right? We, we base the value of, of our week on whether or not we went to church. And so we think of church then as this building, right, this gathering that we do. And the reality is really clear that church is, is, is less about is going to a building and doing this thing on Sunday morning, and it's more about being the church, Right? The church is it's a, it's a, it's a group of people. Right, The church is a, an active, moving organism of people, and it's not this building that we come to. So when you say sometimes, well, I went to church today, you're wrong. Don't ever say that again. You don't go to church. You are the church. If you live in your body, then you are the church 24-7 every day. So we never go to church. We are the church. We happen to be the church gathering together. So from now on, what you say is, I'm just going to go hang out with the family today. Where? Well, it's a group of people at Vintage 242, the church here together, right? We are the people of God. God. It's, a, it's called the ecclesia, the people of God, the body of Christ, the church together. And so when we talk then about disciples and being disciples and making disciples, what we're talking about is less, this less uh, church and this idea of a building and about relationship, right, of being the church. Less busyness, which is all the stuff we saw, and more about being in relationship with people, right? Being engaging people, having your life engaged by someone else, and then you engaging someone else in relationship, right? It's not about producing a show here that we do, but it's about showing Jesus as we love people, liberate, and set those free who are struggling. It's not about being, listen, it's not about being an entertained audience, but about being a lover of Jesus who reveals Jesus to every person that we have audience with every day. This is what it means to be the church as a living, breathing organism that you are a vital component of. You are an arm. You are a leg. We are the body of Christ. We are the church. So the idea then of, of, of true discipleship is this, 
this idea of being conformed then as the people of God, as individuals and as the people of God together, of being changed and conformed into his likeness. And so we've been talking for the last, last several weeks about that and saying that happens as we engage Jesus in relationship with him. But it's all, listen, it's also that as, after having been engaged in relationship with Jesus, you then engaging others in relationship as you share the relationship you have with Jesus with them. Do you see that? Listen, hear me on this. I don't care if anybody ever gets saved inside the four walls. As long as you're leading them to Jesus outside of the four walls and then bring them to the family reunion every Sunday, right? It's not my job to get your friends saved. It's your job to be Jesus and love them and lead them to Jesus. Stop looking to me or anyone else here to lead your friends to Jesus. You lead them to Jesus. If you don't know how, then find someone to lead you to Jesus so that you can then lead someone else. This is the idea in the picture of discipleship. It's beautiful. It'd be, I mean, could you imagine if all of a sudden every single person in this room right now grabbed hold of that reality and began to go and disciple every single person their relationship with? Whether, when I say discipleship, either that means just being friendly to them so you can enter into a relationship or it really means just loving them so they know that you're not some freaky weirdo Christian, right? That you actually love people and you're normal, right? And you can actually have a normal conversation that doesn't involve, hallelujah, Jesus, right? You can have, it's a real authentic conversation with them that's real. Or maybe it's literally saying, hey, do you know Jesus as your Lord? Do you know him as the lover of everything in your life? There's all these contexts of discipleship. But it begins by you knowing him, by loving him, and loving other people, and having a relationship that you're able to share. So that we stop going to church and start being the church. Less busyness and more relationship, right? Not an entertained audience, but a lover of Jesus who reveals him to every person every day that we meet. See, so you, you love that. All right. So, so what I'm going to do for the next several weeks is this. We're going to look at the church in Philippi. We're going to read through the book of, we're going to look through the book of Philippians. So, I want to, so here right now, here's your homework for the next, I don't know how long until we're done. Read Philippians. Your job this week or your homework, right? Because we're all, I'm giving, I'm giving family homework, okay? Family homework there is this week. I want you to read the first chapter of Philippians every day. It's a short chapter. It's not that long. It's not that hard of a read, right? If you don't like reading the King James Version, right? Read the message. I don't really care what you read. Just read something. Some of you are like, oh my gosh, not that inspired of Jesus. Who can, it, it is, right? It's fine. Just read, a, read the Bible, right? Get the NIV and the American Standard and put it next to the message and compare them together. I don't really care, right? Stop being a Pharisee and just let people read the Bible. It makes sense to them, okay? So here we go. So get in this whole moment and read the Bible, okay? Read the first chapter of Philippians. Get into it. Engage it. Embrace it. And see what God has to say and see if I'm wrong when I get up here and teach on Sunday morning, right? Make it more fun that way. So read the book of Philippians. This morning what we're going to do is we're going to look at the very first verse of chapter 1, that's all we're going to do. We're going to look at this one verse and look at Philippi as a city and the, the church in Philippians. So a little. So before we do that, the cultural background, you've got to get an understanding of what's going on. You have to recognize, please listen to this, every letter of Paul is a response to a previous letter. Okay? So we only hear one side of the conversation. So we're going to do our best to kind of get a picture of what's actually happening. But you have to recognize when Paul is writing, he's writing listen, to a specific people, 
at a specific time in history with specific issues they've already written about in their previous letter. Okay? So that's what's happening here. So it's a, it's a specific moment, specific message, a specific situation that's going on. Now, you've got to understand the context of what's happening here. So, so Paul, as he's on his missionary journeys, okay? And if you don't know this, Paul always goes on major trade routes for his mission journeys. Why does he do that? Well, because he can reach the most people. Think about this. What if we did all of our ministry at Atlanta Hartsfield Airport? Think about how many nations you would touch every day because people are flying in from all over the world and then leaving. That's why he stays on trade routes, because he can go into Philippi, which is, on a, which is a massive, just a great city with great business, great trade going on. And he comes and says, I can have the greatest reach by going to a city. People are always coming to it and then leaving, right? He basically is coming here so he can send missionaries out. So he comes into the city. This trade route city, this great city with lots of business and lots of trade, and he invests his time and energy here. And so he comes in and, and, and Acts chapter 16, go and read that too. That's the second part of your homework. Read at chapter 16, it's like verses, I think 12, like 30. It's like where he comes into Philippi. And so what you recognize, he comes into the city, and there are, there's no Jewish, there's no Jewish synagogue. There's, there's no Jewish presence. There's no Christian presence, Right. They're, the primary religion is the imperial cult, which is the worship of, of the emperors of the day. The emperor here actually is Augustus, Caesar Augustus, right, part of the Roman Empire. And so they're coming in there, and, and so he walks in, and listen, there are no friends here. He doesn't have any Christian friends. Oh, my gosh, it's so hard having no friends. He has none. He walks in and makes them. So he goes, he goes so maybe there's some people praying outside of the city. So he goes out, what does he find? Women? He finds a bunch of women. Want to start a good church? Get some women around you. You think I'm kidding. That's, a, that's serious, right? Get these women. And he comes in, finds Lydia. Lydia is high class. I mean, she, is, she, is a, she sells this high, this, this cloth that's worth a lot of money. She's like high class, right? In the upper echelon of the social strata here in the city of Philippi. She is somebody, right? I love that Jesus does this. He, he has Paul come to a powerful woman first. Those of you who don't like women in churches, you need to wrestle with this, right? Because Paul's completely comfortable investing his life into this woman. Okay? And so he comes in and invests into her life and great things, and, and she, she has this life change, right? So, then he, so he and, um, I think it was he and, was it he and Silas, somebody forgive me, I forget. I think it's he and Silas. They begin walking through the city. And so his second convert, remember, it was the woman who was possessed by a demon. So he figured this was a good person to make it the second convert, a demon-possessed person, right? And so he cast the demon out of her, right? Cast the demon out of her. She gives her life to Jesus. That's her second convert. She is a slave. She's on the other end of the spectrum, right? So you remember the story? And so that's when he gets thrown into jail, right? So they go into jail. Everything shakes. The jailer wakes up. He's like, oh, my gosh. He starts freaking out and realizes, oh, actually, he's like, no, no, we're still here. The jailer says, tell me about this Jesus. And they proclaim the gospel of Jesus to him. And the jailer and his entire family get saved. And he's middle class. I love the picture of Jesus. He goes to a high-class woman, goes to a low-class woman, and goes to a middle-class man, right? It's a full spectrum of the social stratosphere right here, and this is the church. That, my friends, is pretty much awesome, right? Neither Greek nor Jew nor slave nor free nor woman or man. God comes and moves this, does this thing through Paul, and then churches originate. You get a 
powerful woman over here is leading it. This jailer over here is leading. This slave woman is leading, right? And they all have experienced the freedom of Jesus and their love and life. And so what happens in Philippi? This great church is birthed. And so when, so when Paul is writing this letter, it's this group of, of men and women who have given their lives to Jesus, and they're now having this church in Philippi, this, this city. And, 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 and it says in chapter 1 that they're struggling, right? They're under persecution, so here's the next part you have to understand. If you've never heard this before and didn't know it, then you've never fully grasped and understood Philippians. Philippi is a Roman colony, and that is a huge deal. That defines everything about this book. Philippi is a Roman colony. What does that really mean, Steve? Why is that a big deal? Think about it this way. Philippi is in the northern part of Greece. It's a, far, it's a long way away from Rome. The emperor's not there, right? Caesar Augustus is not there. And so Caesar got the, the emperor, right? He has this idea. What's the best way to make sure that I have people who will stay true to Rome and make sure that these far outlying colonies stay true to the Roman culture? I've got an idea. I will find soldiers who are retiring from the army... And I will bring them before me. I'll tell them how great they are. I'll tell them how much I love them. I will then tell them about this fantastic city that I have for them. And I'm going to give them titles and prestige. I'm going to give them money. And I'm going to give them land. And as soon as they step into this place, they will be somebody and people will fear them. And so... They step into the city, these soldiers with their families, with titles and with money and with land. They are now high class. And guess who they love? They love Rome. And they love the emperor. And anybody who dares to preach or to speak anything opposed to this Roman culture, anything opposed to the emperor, they will stand against him. Which leads us to Acts chapter 16, verse 21. It says, remember, Paul has just come and preached. Paul has just come and released this woman from demonic oppression. And it says this. It says, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. All theologians, anything you read, are going to say that what they find here is their identity. They don't find their identity in who they are as a father. They don't find their identity in anything except the fact that they are a Roman who worship Caesar Augustus. Listen, do you think that Paul made up the phrase, Jesus Christ is Lord? Do you know who he stole that from? He stole it from the Romans. Because every day they would wake up and say, Caesar alone is Lord. And so what we find here again is this dynamic tension going on. Because here's the deal. Paul is stepping into a political situation which is married. There's a marriage between church and state here, right? It's worship of Caesar Augustus, the imperial cult. Everything's about Rome. Everything's about the Roman culture. Everything's about Caesar Augustus. And, and Paul comes in. He says, listen, their patriotism to their country is a stench in the nostrils of Jesus. Because it's the kingdom of God first and everything else is a distant second. You do not worship Caesar as Lord. Jesus Christ alone is Lord and it will produce persecution. Just like I was thrown into prison for making that statement and declaring it, right? Then it would be true for you also. What 
Paul could have written here. He could have stolen that scripture from where he could have said, hey, if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, you have to love your, have to hate your father, your mother, your brother, your sister, and yes, even your own country and your own self if you're going to be my disciple. Patriotism too often in scripture here according to Paul stands in the way of people fully giving themselves to the kingdom of God. Wrestle with that as a good American. I'm not making some political statement here. Do not hear me say that. My, the politics is the politics of the kingdom, and Paul is making the statement. We have to be careful that kingdom in Jesus is always first. Hear me hear between the lines. Of that. If you're getting offended in that, you need to ask yourself why. We are Christians first, and Americans a distant second. And we have to live in that reality. Just let that sink in, okay? Just wrestle with that a little bit. Don't, don't stone me for saying that. It's always Jesus first. And he's making that statement here. It has to be about Jesus. He is supreme here. So that's why there's persecution. Because they're saying we're not going to be patriotic to Caesar Augustus. We're not going to worship him as Lord. We will serve our country, Right? We will do what we need to do. We will be good, we'll be good Romans, even in the context of the culture that we're living in. Paul was a good Roman. If you go on and re- read in the end of chapter 16, he gets thrown into prison and he says, I can't believe you threw me in a well-upstanding Roman. And it says the leaders freaked out because they, that was unlawful to do. Paul's a good Roman who put Jesus first at all times. So that's the context he steps into. The patriotism of the people of Rome because of these soldiers and the status of who they are literally, literally caused persecution to happen for the Christians who were in Philippi. That's the context of the writing. You can't understand, you can't read Philipp, the Philippians unless you understand that. Okay? So, so let's jump in now. First verse of chapter one, it says this. Let me find myself. So the first verse says this Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. All right. Now, this, this verse that Paul writes is intentionally shocking. Now, I don't know if you read it as shocking. I don't know if you kind of glossed over it. Is that all you're going to talk about? This verse to his readers is shocking. And it should be shocking to you. It is the foundation. It is the base upon which the rest of the letter is written. Paul comes and says, Timothy and I are servants of Christ Jesus. Now, you need to recognize, this is, this is the NIV. The NIV does a really bad job of translating this word. The word, the Greek word here is doulos. D-O-U, did I write it? D-O-U-L-O-S. It literally means slave of the lowest order. Okay? Servant just sounds like, hey, I'm just going to go over here and serve from 9 to 5, then I'm going to go home. No, no. A doulos is a slave of the lowest level. They have no rights. They have no rights to pursue their own will. They have no purposes of their own. They are 100% and completely under their master's wills, master's desire, the master's will, the master's purposes, and the master's longing. The slave has no life of their own outside of what their master tells them to do. And so, so Paul comes into the moment. And he begins to speak and says, I want to go ahead and clarify for everyone up front as I write this letter. I am a doulos. I am a doulos. I am a slave of the lowest order and I love it. 
And I love it. Because what happens here in this moment is this. He is saying, I am a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. I am completely sold out to his will. And I am willing to go wherever he leads me. I'm a man who has made a choice. And I'm going to serve him for all of eternity. Scripture tells us, it says, listen, there are two masters you can serve. And you're going to either hate one and love the other, or love one and hate the other. Right? You're going to hate one, love the other, whatever it may be, right? And so the idea of Paul's going to say, listen, I lived as my own master of my own life, master of my own domain for all of my life. And I had a revelation moment of the jealousy of God's love for me, and I recognized the best thing to do in my life was to become a doulos to by choice become a slave to him and turn over everything in my will and my desires and my passion to say, I don't want mine anymore. I want yours. Why? Because he stands under a jealous lover of a master who desires the best and longs for perfection for this, this slave. And he's saying, he's saying, Paul, as your father, as your God, uh, you've come under me and I want the best for you. And I'm gonna, my, my purposes and my will are perfect. And Paul's had this recognition. It's a powerful moment. You've got to recognize that when Paul is... Speaking, just put that verse back up there and just leave it up, okay? Man, just, you have this whole thing going down of, of this first verse right here. It says, Paul and slaves of Christ Jesus. You see, for every single person who is listening as this letter was being read out loud to the family gathering... That's how they were read. They were, if you don't know, they would bring up a letter from Paul, Paul, Paul wrote a letter, Paul wrote a letter. Oh my gosh, let's all get together. They would, they would all like run over to the gathering place, right? The, the 10, the 20, the 30, however many it was, and they would all sit down just on just the edge of their seat and say, Paul wrote us, Paul wrote us. Oh my gosh, this is so great. Dad wrote us. Spiritual dad wrote us. This is going to be, oh, he finally wrote back. This is so great. I've been waiting for this moment, right? They're leaving all their food at home. They're grabbing their kids and dragging them down the road, right? And they're sitting there in the moment. And he writes, and, the, and the, whoever it was, the pastor of the moment, the shepherd gets up and he opens the letter and he says, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. And a holy hush breaks out. Because, see, in the eyes of every single person who was sitting there, they recognized Paul as their spiritual dad. They saw him as the, the founder of their church. He is on a pedestal for them. They know his story. They know everything about him. They know him as an apostle. What does that really mean? Well, they know that he's on par with the Peter and the James and the Johns and the Matthews, all these disciples of Jesus, and they're like, he just called himself a slave. He's on par with these guys. How can he do that? Because, see, 50% of the people in the room had at one time or another been a slave. You see, in these Roman colonies, half of the people in the colony were slaves. Slavery was a little bit different back then. It didn't have quite the negative connotation as it does, at least for our generation, looking back into the 1700s, 1800s and, and stuff. There's a, it's different, right, the 1900s. But you had this whole, this whole dynamic going down that every single person in this room knew either had been a slave or had probably owned a slave. And they knew the language. And all of a sudden they went, oh my gosh, what is he getting at? You see, for us as human beings, what do you do when you go to a, uh, a dinner party and you get in those conversations? 
in some, in, in some, some of you dread this moment. Some of you can't wait. And the person asks, hey, what do you do for a living? Now, the CEOs of massive 400 500 com, uh, corporations go, well, I'm a CEO of a Fortune 500 com, corporation. Like, oh, my gosh. And you're like, and what do you do? You automatically put that person on a pedestal. You put them up here, right? Go to the next person and say, what do you do for a living? I'm, a, I'm one who beautifies our city. Oh, how do you do that? Oh, I scrape gum off the sidewalks. Really? Yes. And I love it. Right? And you're like, okay, go talk to this guy over here, right? That's strange. So anyway, this whole dynamic going down. So we step into situations, and by nature, what do we want to do? We want to all, listen, how many of you have ever described yourself in a much higher way than you actually were? Right? Because you step in a situation, right? Somebody's wearing a tie and they're drinking a martini, and you're like, I need to prove myself of being worth my proof. I need to prove my, my value and my worth to them. They have an olive in that drink, right? They must be cool, so I'm going to prove myself to them, right? And so you say, well, you need to describe yourself in some way that your wife goes, really? Seriously? That's not what he does, actually, right? Because their wife makes you be honest. It's great. And so you have this whole dynamic going down. And Paul comes in the moment, and guess what he has? So, someone, he comes in the moment, and someone looks at him at the dinner party and says, what do you do for a living? And he goes, oh, I'm a doulos. And they go, how did a doulos get in here? And they go, who are you talking about? Like, that guy right there is a doulos. Paul, are you kidding me? Let me tell you what he's done. He's seen people, rate, he's literally laid hands on the sick and they've been healed. A blind eyes have been opened, right? Thousands of people have entered into a relationship through him. He's literally prayed for them. The, the, the dead have been raised, right? He literally travels all over the world to proclaim the name of Jesus. He started the church that you're sitting in today. But he says, a doulos, I know it's crazy. Because in this, there was no level of false humility for Paul. He wasn't trying to make some sort of political statement here. He literally said, the greatest agenda in my life is to be a slave of Jesus. And I don't care what anybody else thinks about me. I'm a doulos till I die. I am a slave until I die. This defines him. And the point that he's making, making it this the, the fourth word of this first line of the letter he's writing, is he's saying, if, listen, may wake up. If you're going to be a disciple, then you must follow me and be a doulos. You must be a slave every moment of your life to the love of Jesus and to the call that he has on your life. It's not your will, but his will. You must decrease because he needs to be increasing every moment of every day of your life. If you're going to be in a relationship with him, it needs to be this way. If you're going to be discipling others, you need to begin by being a doulos so you can lead everybody else to being a doulos and a slave and a servant of, of, of the rest of the world because you need to love God by serving him, by loving your neighbor. This is what it means to go make disciples of all nations. Because he is a jealous lover who's satisfied with nothing less than this relationship. So, what does that mean for us? Three things. It's an encouragement for us because the last thing you really want to be in life is a slave. So let's kind of put this in context. Number one, the master is always responsible for the slave's needs. If a slave can't get anything in their own strength. They can't 
use their own purposes to get stuff, then guess what? They can't get anything. So guess who's responsible for them every day of their life? Their master. And imagine a perfect, loving God who wants every day to provide for us, right? It's this beautiful picture. It says later in Philippians, Paul says, listen, my God shall supply all of your needs. Do you listen to that? Just sit down and just listen. Get beyond the knowledge that recognize you recognize that verse. It's, he says, my God, my master, I'm a doulos, my master, he provides all of my needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus, whom we're in relationship with. And so when you freak out every day about not having what you need, then you're living in this moment trying to be your own master. Stop freaking out. He's your master. And it's his responsibility to provide for you, whether it's literally food on your table or clothes on your back or healing for the things that are causing your depression or your anxiety or your worry. He says, I am, I am the one who provides, right? This is my job. I am your master. I'll do the second thing is this. The master is responsible for his slave's duties. Listen. So we, so as we have jobs, we have things that we're supposed to be doing in life, okay? And so every day we freak out because we see some, we compare ourselves to somebody else who is smarter, who makes more money, who is better at what they do, right? And so we freak out saying, oh my gosh, I gotta be like this person over here. And God says, no, no, no. I pass out the duties. You don't. And so if you look down on yourself because all you because all you do is stay home and care for your children and you look at this woman over here who is just literally leading thousands of people to Jesus over in Africa and seeing the dead raised or she's leading her own corporation, right? Guess what God thinks about that? He doesn't care because all he wants to know is that you're fulfilling the duty that he gave you. And if you are, then in his eyes, you are 100% equal and you need to stop comparing yourself to anybody else and just make sure that you're doing what God wants you to do because it's his duty for your life and you can stop comparing yourself. So stop worrying and take a deep breath and enjoy your duty. If you listen, guys, this is going to be this is tough living in America as we're always climbing the corporate ladder. Do you know how much more you'd enjoy your job if you just lived in the duty of the moment and said, hey, this is what God asked for me. I'm going to enjoy it. Stop freaking out about not making enough money or my boss is mean over here. I'm just going to, this is the duty I have right now. So I'm going to engage it fully and I'm going to do the best, I'm going to do the best job that I have ever done in my life. I'm just loving the moment and fulfilling my duty without trying to climb the corporate ladder and get higher in anything. Let God exalt you, not yourself. Oh, man, that's, the whole, that's, that's, all right, that's a little tangent right there. Anyway, number three. Number three. Because the, the master's job to give duties to his slaves, right? <clears throat> now, the master provides our... Number three. The master provides our supplies for success. So, when a... Listen, it was really common in, in, the, Roman, in the Roman culture that if you had a slave and you were going off to war, you'd take your slave with you. Well, guess what he has to fight with? Absolutely nothing. Guess who he's looking to? You, the master, right? And so it's your job to supply everything that he needs to fight well. In fact, because you, because you quote-unquote own him, you want him to have the best of the best. So more than likely, you're actually probably giving him your stuff, your armor, your sword, because 
man, he's in it because he needs to be able to provide and take care. You want him alive, right? He, he's costing you money. So you give him the best of the best. And so we find this here, right? Second Peter 1, 3 says, His divine power, whose God's divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him, who called us by his own glory and goodness. Basically, we have everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Jesus and him as our master. And he provides everything that we need to live life and to flourish in the moment and to succeed in the duties that he's given us. It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. If you're in a job and you have no joy, it's not God's fault. He's already given you the fruit of his Holy Spirit. If you would engage, listen, you want to enjoy your job, guys, then you so fully engage Jesus every moment of your life that you don't care if you're scooping poop out of a toilet or living high off the hog in St. John on the 10-year anniversary, right? Who really cares as long as you are loving Jesus in the moment? Because when you love Jesus in the moment and he becomes everything to you, then the, the mundane becomes fantastic. How do I know that? Because it's the fruit of of what he supplies for us as a fruit of his presence with us. It's love and it's joy and it's peace and it's patience. It's kindness. Listen, stay-at-home moms, if you're struggling with your, your toddler and you're wrestling, say, oh my gosh, right? Number one, hang out with some other women sometimes, right? And, and, and husbands take care of your wives and give them some space. But the other part of it is just fall in love with Jesus the entire day. Go after Jesus while you're chasing after your children, right? It'll take you a time. To, yes, it may take some time to allow that to fully engage, but that's the idea. As you fully, fully engage the presence of the Holy Spirit, the promise is his fruit will all be love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Who doesn't want more of that, right? So engage him in this way as a master pours himself out. So... This is our discipleship relationship. This is the beginning of our conversation about the church in Philippi. Okay? So a couple of things to leave you with. Number one, what is your identity? What is your identity? Is it as a, as a slave of Jesus? Or is it something else? Is it being your own master, the master of your own domain? Or the enemy is really stirring and stealing that, whatever, whatever it may be. What is your identity along these lines? I want, to, I want to ask you to do when you're reading the book of Philippians. I want you to engage Jesus and have a conversation. So, Jesus, what is my identity? Because I, I really think I'm wrapped up in what I want for myself all the time. I think I'm probably actually, if I'm honest, I'm, I'm my own God. I'm defining what my will and desire. I'm my, I'm my own master. I want my purposes to be fulfilled. I want my will to be done on earth as I desire it in my mind, right? On earth as it is in my mind, whatever it may be, right? So ask that question. Number two, you know that you are doing well of serving your master as a slave if you are leaving the four walls and investing in people's lives and they're becoming more like Jesus. That's how you know if you're doing a good job of being a slave to the master that everyone that you're around every day is becoming more like Jesus. It's, it's simple, right? And you can do that. So I want you to, this week, again, you're sitting down, this identity part, and ask yourself, God, what does that look like? How am I doing in this, right? Listen, if you then feel a voice of condemnation in that, like, oh my gosh, I'm a terrible Christian. Didn't you already know that? You're a human being, right? So yes, 
So the, the idea of God, whenever he speaks to us, there's no condemnation. He says, you say, I'm a terrible Christian. He's like, I know, but I can help you. Right? Con, the, the, this, this recognition of Jesus not being our master and kind of living. When we have that recognition moment, we go, like, oh, God, I'm so sorry. It's like, I know, but I can help you. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so you would engage and say, help me to become the slave of a perfect, loving master so that I'm about your will and your purposes and your desires. All right, let's pray.